Please open up in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 14. This is a well-known text during this morning. Are you a Christian? And why can you say that you're a Christian? Lots of people answer by saying yes. In fact, if you do a quick Google search, which I did this morning, uh, you'll find that two-thirds of the country actually call themselves Christian, which you and I both know is absolutely absurd. There is no way two-thirds of our nation are actually Christians. Well, that raises the question, what is a genuine Christian? Well, a Christian, most strictly speaking, is a disciple of Christ, a disciple of Christ. And to be a disciple of Christ in our age is to abide in his teachings. That means we listen to what he says and we abide in it. And, of course, where may the seeking soul find Christ's teachings? Well, in Scripture. 500 years ago, in the days of the Reformation, which we often celebrate on October 31st, which happens to be next Sunday, the Christian church was recapturing the primacy of Scripture. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, is a bit of a battle cry for us Protestants. And this stood at the center of the Reformation because Christianity had witnessed what happens when Christian life is detached from the Scriptures. In the era following the fall of the Roman Empire, literacy rates in the West dropped dramatically. Access to Scripture became increasingly scarce because so few people could actually read it. And I've heard some scholars say uh, 2 to 3% of the population uh, was actually literate, most of those being monks. And because of this, Many man-made myths and doctrines slithered their way into the church, and the church became increasingly superstitious. The centrality of Christ was eclipsed in the church by a supposed need for Mary and the saints. The common means of grace were obscured, replaced by high rituals and magic relics. But by the hand of providence and the kindness of the Lord, Scripture uh, Christians began to realize that Scripture alone must be the basis for our doctrine and practice because human speculation has no firm anchor. Man can invent all matters of stories and myths and whip up feelings of hope and guilt, but what of these myths correspond with reality? And how do we know? God, God's Word provides mankind what these man-made doctrines and traditions cannot. The Reformers grasped this. Scripture stands alone in its ability to bind our conscience and convict us of God's laws. No human has any such authority. No pope, no prophet in and of himself. God's Word is the only sure foundation for Christian doctrine and practice because of what it is, because of its very nature. As treasure doctrines were rediscovered, faithful men stood their ground upon what Scripture said, convicted completely to the core of their being of what it said and its truthfulness. Because of this 
education and translation efforts abounded to bring Scripture, which had for so long been out of reach, into the hands of Christians. This small spark of conviction concerning Scripture forcefully exploded into a robust understanding of doctrine and a fierce opposition, a fierce opposition to false teaching. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need such a spark in our day. Desperately. This morning, my aim is to draw your sight to the excellencies of God's Word, to aid you in lifting up your gaze that you may behold the radiant perfection of God's law, that we may daily be brought, daily brought to the foot of the cross by the Word, that we may see our Lord with greater clarity May your heart burn in the light of the Word of God. May you plunge headlong into its fire, drawing both conviction and comfort from it. May the Holy Spirit cause our dulled hearts to be raised and our souls to ever drink from Scripture, to read, memorize, and meditate on it. Let's read our text from this morning. We're bridging the chapter divide here, (laughs) and then we'll pray starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us in granting us your word. Lord, you have spoken, and our ears are so dulled, Father. Our hearts are so hardened to the fact that you have revealed yourself. This morning, Lord, awaken our hearts' love and delight for you. Teach us to love you through reading your word. May we behold your glory in the pages of this book. Would you sanctify us by your spirit? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Timothy was the Apostle Paul's disciple. His protege, his beloved child in the faith, as he refers to him. And at the writing of this letter, 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison, likely awaiting probable execution. 2 Timothy is likely the last letter ever written by Paul. It is his final written charge to young Timothy, whom he loved and cared for and discipled. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul issues Timothy this warning, verses 1 through 5 of this chapter. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Timothy needs to be prepared for people who have the appearance of godliness, who look godly, but are in fact riddled with wickedness. Paul then contrasts these characters with the character of Timothy himself. In verse 10, he says this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. Verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Here we find a divide. The vileness of evil men who appear to be godly and those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus. It is in this context of this divide that Paul continues on into our first few verses this morning. Uh, Chapter uh, 3, verses 14 through 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's contrast is helpful here. Wicked men appear righteous, but are not. You, however, he says to Timothy, must not be like that. You must persist in what you have learned. Don't neglect these things. Don't let them atrophy. Don't let them fade away in your soul. Continue in them. Persist in them because you know who taught you these things, the, the apostles and the prophets. Verse 15 says, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Timothy was taught by Paul and the other apostles when he was an adult, but he grew up being acquainted or familiar with the sacred writings, sacred writings chiefly under, likely, the instruction of his faithful mother and grandmother who taught them to him. Contextually, Paul draws our attention to this fact. A chief difference between Timothy and the wicked men is that godly men persist in the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. And Timothy had known these teachings since childhood. To grow from infancy into a mature knowledge of the Scriptures, to be acquainted with them from a young age. Oh, the grace of God on display, the kindness of the Almighty. What a blessing that is. And that should convict us. Parents, you have been given a great and terrible responsibility to give your children the sweet words of God's instruction to raise them to be acquainted with the sacred writings to model meditating on God's law day and night. It is better for a child to know Scripture than to sleep in a bed. It is better for a child's heart to be a library of God's teachings than to ever be able to quote a single line from a single movie. Parents, do not neglect this. Teach the Word to your children daily. Teach your children. God has given your family an awesome privilege 
to have access to his word. It's in your pocket literally all day long, yet we squander this so we can fill our minds with trivial, worldly nonsense. Stop it, Christian. Stop wasting your days and your evenings. Stop tuning your heart to delight in the world. Tune it to God. Spend your nights on your knees with your children. The greatest thing you can do to raise your children is to pray for them and to live imitable lives and to teach them the Scriptures. What a privilege you've been given. Do not squander it. The apostle then continues to further describe the character and efficacy of these sacred writings. The second half of 15 here. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. These are writings able to make you wise for salvation. How can you know salvation? How can we grasp it? How can we have it? It's not through the sharpness of your intellect. Your wits, your logic may aid you in the world, but logic is no solution to sin. Hear this, dust cannot grasp the divine. And our sins have hidden the Lord from our eyes. As the hymn says, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. We have no might to know him, nor his son, nor his salvation. You cannot breach the sinfulness of your own heart, and no philosophy of man can awaken your slumbering heart that lies in the valley of iniquity. God is the one who has spoken. His testimony makes the heart tremble before his holiness. Only the Spirit of God may put the flesh back on dry bones and stir the heart of stone that is dead. And here we find the Spirit of God works through His Word. The apostle's meaning here is plain but significant. The Bible teaches us how to be saved. The Bible teaches us how to be saved. It has a unique power not only to teach us about salvation, but to convict our dead hearts and to awaken a love for the Creator and a true repentance and a desire for godliness. But notice this as well, the sacred writings that make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Scripture does tell us of salvation, but salvation gained only by faith in Jesus. Now, if Paul is speaking chiefly here about the Old Testament, that's what he had in mind here, how is this the case? How does the Old Testament tell us about salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. That's what Jesus said. Jesus is the essence, the substance of both the Old and New Testaments. The mysteries once shrouded in prophecies and types and shadows have now been fully disclosed. To cling to the words of Scripture, Christians, is to be driven to Christ, to rejoice in His work, to discover Him on every single page. He is the center of all creation. All things were made through him and for him, and he redeemed us that he and the Father would be exalted. 
The testimony of Scripture is about Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's the creator, the second Adam, the perfect covenant keeper, the new and better Israel, the prophet, the priest, the king, the Savior. And if you find a religion that lacks a pure devotion to Jesus, if you find a religion that claims to be Christian and knows nothing about its Christ, if you find a religion that neglects to tell of him and has no delight in his excellencies, you will find a religion devoid of all understanding of the Scriptures. Be prodded to a reverent love for the Savior through his word. Be driven to trust in him alone for your salvation. See how Scripture unfolds the redemptive plan of the Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Give up your attempts to earn your righteousness and receive the righteousness that doesn't come from the law, but by faith in Jesus. As the wicked grow yet more vile, let the substance of your life, Christian, be filled with the knowledge of the sacred writings. Let's continue to verse 16 and 17. This is a well-known... If you haven't memorized this verse, you should memorize this verse. It's a well-known verse. All Scripture is breathed up by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul just said the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. Here, Paul inserts his commentary on the nature of sacred Scripture. What is it? Why? Does it have the power to make you wise unto salvation? This is Paul's answer. First, note this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not some of Scripture. Not only the parts pertaining to faith and practice. Not only those that are acceptable and palatable for today's world. All Scripture. Every crumb of this book is God-breathed. Scripture is not a buffet table, guys. You... Christian, you take what it says, how it says it, and you accept it, or you're no Christian at all. A Christian cannot despise the teachings of Christ, and thus there is value in all the odd and obscure corners of the Bible we like to just kind of forget about. From the laws of Leviticus to the genealogies of 1 Chronicles, from the cries of Jeremiah in Lamentations to the lewd and offensive language describing the whoredom of Israel in the book of Ezekiel from the overtly sexual language of Song of Solomon to head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, from faith without deeds in James 2 to Christ proclaiming to spirits in prison in 1 Peter 3, from vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in Romans 9 to beasts and dragons in Revelation. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Get off Instagram and read it. Memorize it. You have a hard time concentrating when you read the Bible. I know that because we all do. So do I. Because we've trained our minds to delight in such worldly, mundane things. We've taught them to love something not worth loving. Our souls are, are, are darkened by the world now, by, by the hardness of sin, so that we can't glimpse the surpassing excellencies of God's Word so let your mind be retrained to delight in things worth delighting in by the Spirit through His Word. 
all Scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations will say inspired. This is the jewel at the center of this glorious verse. God breathed theonoustos. Theos is Greek for God. Noustos is breathed out, literally pushed out by breath. Uh, think of um, like pneumonia or pneumatic tube, same kind of idea. Theonoustos. We often use the theological word inspired, like I said, but Paul here isn't speaking to Scripture's production. Paul isn't telling us how Scripture uh, was actually produced. He's telling us of the source of Scripture. God himself authored the holy book. And because Scripture is a work of God, it is infallible and inerrant, perfect and accurate. God does not lie. God is not imperfect, and thus His Word does not lie and contains no such imperfection. We call this verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration, a fun theological phrase worth noting. All that means is that all of Scripture, every single word is inspired. Scripture was produced as man wrote, being carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter tells us. And this is extraordinary, is it not? Oh, the sweet and free confidence you can have in His Word. To have such an anchor, a foundation, a pillar. Our prophets, prophets haven't spoken up what their minds thought God said. It's not even secondhand from an angel. We're not already getting digested revelation filtered through a man. The words themselves are inspired and perfect. The individual letters are significant. Their depth's inexhaustible, but their simplicity known to infants. God's nature center stage in the whole threads of His sovereign plan woven throughout every page, radiant perfection emanating from its claims, the hidden and then later revealed person of Jesus, the gem of the whole. It is our lens, our worldview-shaping work. Through it, we're, giving, we're, we're given a privileged peak of divine mysteries far above our station. Oh, how human knowledge pales, how it bows before the perfect wisdom of the Almighty Creator. And that such excellent truths from, from the Creator are not for the elite, not for the brightest and best of us, but they've been given to you. You have it. If not in your hand, then your pocket. It's been given to your family. See the kindness of God in this his grace and his love. God has no need to reveal himself. He's not obligated to tell us anything about him. And apart from his self-revelation, you'd know nothing about him. And we so frequently despise it because we forsake it and we cast it aside. It collects dust on our shelves because our TV show is more important See how thy heart is quickly drawn astray, Christian. Your life is not for comfort or enjoyment or entertainment. It's for worship and holiness. And you need to know that. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1. 
The instruction of the Lord is more to be desired than gold itself. Psalm 19. The godly man is defined by Scripture. Are you a Christian? Then live and die in the Word of God. By having laid bare the nature of Scripture, the apostle then turns to consider its function in this verse. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, or rebuke, for improvement slash correction, and for training in righteousness. God's Word wasn't produced to float in a vacuum of your intellectual curiosity. Because Scripture is from God, it's true. Because it's true, it's profitable, useful, helpful to you. Psalm 19 says that it gives wisdom to the simple. It enlightens the eyes. It revives the heart. God has breathed out His Word to work in your heart, O Christian. It is a tool of the Holy Spirit, a scalpel that craftily operates on your heart. The Word is given to teach you, to rebuke you, to correct you, and to train you for good deeds. First, for teaching. The Bible gives us knowledge. It provides understanding of God and His salvation. Knowledge is the foundational element of faith. In order to have faith, you must have faith in something. In order to have faith in something, you must know about the something you're having faith in. In other words, to trust something, you have to know about it. Scripture provides that information, yet it is boundlessly beneficial for our Christian life. And the disciple of Christ is saturated with such things, recognizing that the end for which we were saved was to behold God's glory for eternity. Well, listen, learn to see God's glory now. Look to His Word. The Bible is also useful for reproof or rebuke, some translations say. This deals with the moral issues of our heart. How is your sin confronted? How are you convicted of wrongdoing? Well, God has given His Word for this very purpose. Listen, the Bible grates against our flesh on purpose. It's the sledgehammer that God strikes our flesh with. When we immerse ourselves in Scripture, our sins are laid bare, out in the open, visible, identified. The man who daily swims in the Word shall not be shocked by his heart's capacity for wickedness. He will know himself clearly, aware of his frailties and his utter dependence upon the Spirit of God for holiness. The Spirit-inspired Scripture also to correct error, for correction, to set right misunderstanding and errant belief. Listen, far more likely am I to trust a church whose secondary doctrines I disagree with, but who loves the Bible and highly regards it, than a church that I may happen to have agreement with, but has, who has no genuine regard for Scripture. For if someone loves and submits to the Word, then the Word will correct their life and thinking, either mine or theirs. Their doctrine will be constantly revised again and again, being refined in the fires of God's holy word. Be aware, you guys are surrounded by error every single day, and it comes at you constantly. We live in Utah. Error reigns here, if not Mormonism, then atheism, or New Age paganism, or worldly political opinion. Well, God granted his word as our tool 
to correct these things. Scripture is useful for correction, so make your appeal to the world with the Word. Correct and bring all scriptural authority to bear. Let it also protect your family and shield them them from error. Lastly, the apostle speaks of Scripture training us in righteousness, training us in righteousness. How often have we been confronted with sin in our lives and unsure of how to conquer it? This is the experience for literally every Christian. How frequently we feel our flesh rise up within us and we succumb to it and we give in to it. How can we guard ourselves from that? And you know exactly what I'm talking about. How can we protect our hearts from giving over to the sin that rises up in us? Well, Scripture trains us in righteousness. Listen, physical training takes time and dedication and discipline. Scriptural training, training in righteousness, it's no different. It's no different. It takes time, dedication, and discipline. If you do not let Scripture train you, then you will not stand a chance against the vileness of your flesh. If you don't let the Word of God train you for righteousness, you don't stand a chance. Your heart is far more wicked than you realize. Wash yourself in Scripture. Be in it constantly. Know it. Memorize giant sections and go to work and review it in your mind. When temptation comes, then recite it. Flee from sin to God's Word. You know, Jesus gave us a model for how to fight temptation. When Satan tempted him, how did he respond? He used Scripture. You should too, Christian. When temptation comes, you respond with the word of the living God. Scripture can help you because God inspired it. It's not just a human production. It's the very word of the Lord. Scripture's usefulness is a result of its inspiration. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The that there uh, is a fun little word that indicates purpose. In this case, we have to ask the question, for what purpose has God inspired Scripture? Well, to make the man of God complete. And to be complete is to be equipped for every good work. Well, Paul has used the expression, the man of God here, chiefly to refer to Timothy. He uses that elsewhere. He's specifically talking to Timothy. Man of God, that Timothy, you may be complete equipped for every good work. We need not restrict the scope of the application here. If Scripture makes Timothy equipped for every good work, or even broadly, we'll just say pastors, ministers, and churches, then how much more does it apply to the rest of us? Listen, everything that God expects of you is found in the pages of Holy Scripture. Everything. Everything God expects of our church Here it is. Everything you need to be mature and complete, God's already given to you. Do not trust the false prophets of the day claiming to speak speak of things God expects of you that are not found in Scripture. Beware of them. They are wolves. Rebuke them and cut them down with the Word of God. Stand not for a moment for the tempering of the power of sacred scripture. You don't need a small voice in your heart directing your moral choices. God already told you what to do. 
He already spoke to you. You don't need a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge to bind your conscience to some foreign work. God has once for all given you all that he expects of his people. Other books, other instructions, perhaps they're good and helpful. Other books are good. Read other books. But God gives you everything you need in his word. If you're going to read one book and only one, let it be this one. For what else could the apostle mean by saying that Scripture gives you all you need to be equipped for every good work? What else does that mean if not every good work that you could possibly have to do before God is given to you, instruction is given to you in Scripture? Listen, the prophets of this age are going to shriek at you demanding that they submit, that you submit to their morality. We know this. Our world is nuts. And they demand that your conscience be bound to their moral code. Absolutely not! Not now and not ever will that be the case. You do not move off of God's word. You do not compromise. You do not crack. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And the faithless cannot tell you what God requires of you because they don't even know him. The foolish, the fool turns from God's word looking for instruction elsewhere. Do we get it from culture or from popular opinion or from the news? Folly. Do not be counted amongst them, Christian. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The ways of man are chaff, they'll blow away in the next generation. Have we not seen that today's virtues are tomorrow's vices, and today's vices are tomorrow's virtues? But the word of the Lord stands forever. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but his word never shall. Why huddle around this smoldering wick of the world? Christian, be cleansed of worldly thinking and bask in the light of the word. This next chapter, chapter four, in my life, I have never had anyone bridge chapter four with the end of chapter three. And originally, I was going to stop at verse 17 until I read chapter four, and I was like, oh my goodness, the next instructions directly proceed from what Paul had said. Like, with this in mind, chapter 4. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we have to continue now. So ignore the arbitrary chapter division. We're moving on. This is what Paul wrote next. It's, it's intended to flow right out of the end of chapter 3 here. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul gives a charge, an urging, a warning. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. So the terrifying shadow of his looming judgment and consummated kingdom, Paul charges the young minister, preach the word that is inspired. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. If not, may the judgment of God be on you. God-breathed writings are useful for reprove, rebuke, and exhortation. And so use it, Timothy. Unleash it. Scripture is to be Timothy's chief weapon, his tool given by God himself to shepherd the flock. And with great patience, says Paul, cut the Ephesians with the word, slice their hearts open, and expose their sins. Instruct them, and if you do not, may the judgment of God be upon you. The threat of the throne of heaven looms over the minister's task. So, church, 
Though the following things aren't necessarily Paul's point, I have a couple points of instruction here. Timothy was to preach the word to correct and rebuke. You need to be in a context in which you're being preached to, exhorted and rebuked. And for starters, this means you must be committed to a church. You must sit under faithful preaching. Know the plurality of elders and pastors at your church well enough to be rebuked by them. What this means is that watching sermons online does not count. It's not bad. Watch sermons all you want. That is not sitting under preaching and being rebuked and exhorted by pastors. There's absolutely no substitute for being here. When we come together as the saints of God, we subject ourselves corporately to the preaching of the word. We address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why we sing. We corporately proclaim our union with Christ through the Lord's Supper, and thus our union with one another. We bear one another's burdens. We encourage one another. We greet one another. Brothers and sisters, such things cannot be done online. It would feel weird, wouldn't it, if a couple decided to get married over Zoom? Because something about getting married requires the physical presence of both parties. The weekly gathering of the bride of Christ must also be physical. How can you be rebuked by a pastor that can't possibly see you, let alone know your life, watch your conduct, or exhort you? And I'm not talking about the week in which you're sick and you watch something online. That's not what I'm speaking to. What I'm speaking to here is the consistent pattern of saying, it's easier for me to sit in my living room and put it on TV. You're not going to church if you do that. Be preached to, yearn for rebuke. Let pastors and members both see your life messes and all that they can exhort you and don't despise correction. How can the elders correct you if you don't let them? Be humble, seek righteousness, and my goodness, do not settle for a church that does not obey this command from Paul to Timothy. Do not do that. Do not, oh Christian, wreck yourself by sitting under silly little boys who tell entertaining stories of themselves for 30 minutes and call that a sermon. How can a pastor who doesn't know Scripture be a benefit to you? Flee from those who would speak their own thoughts, who would coddle your flesh, who care not at all for your holiness. You need to look for a pastor who will beat you up with the Word of God, who will smash your pride and humble your heart before the throne of God above. And I don't just mean a preacher that sounds significant or that wows you with well-crafted flowery statements, because profound, eloquent-sounding speech can itself be an effective vehicle for deception. What we need is plain, the word expounded and applied to us. Endure sound teaching. Subject yourself and your family to preaching that hurts. So often men love preaching that excites the heart. Far rarer is it to find a man who loves preaching that hurts him. Before you commit to a church, find out if the elders are worthy under shepherds. Verify that they're qualified. Listen, I heard this from, uh, from Aaron Schaffwall of a while ago. I th- thought it was very helpful. Ten years ago, zero of you were at this church. Not, not a one of you, because the church didn't exist. <laughs> Who knows where the Lord may lead you in ten years from now? Who knows where you'll end up? What city? What church? When you inevitably must move and look for a new church, listen to me. Better to have the word preached and the worst music you've ever heard in your entire life 
than professional guitar riffs and a people devoid of God's word. Better to have a dilapidated, ugly old building and a faithful, cranky old preacher in a time <laughs> who will give you flesh-crushing but life-giving words. If you can't find a faithful church with honest preaching, don't move. I'm serious about that. Don't you do it. Your church is more important than any job you could possibly have. The spiritual life of your family is more significant than having enough money for Netflix or Disney Plus or an iPhone. Students, if you get a full ride to your dream college but can't find a good church, don't go to that college. Only a fool would sit under the counsel of the wicked and never hear the word of the Lord. And if you're unconvinced by this, you might not understand the significance of the saints' gathering. Church is not where you go for daycare and coffee. Gathering of the saints is not just for catching up with friends. Here is where heaven is opened, and we as a bride commune with the bridegroom. The Lord's day, said the Puritans, is the market day of the soul. We hear his instruction. We feast on his words. We are rejuvenated by his body and his blood, and we are reminded the power of God to save lost sinners and sanctify them. At the center of all this is the word of God, the preaching of his word. We hear what God says. It's expounded for us. We marvel in awe at his words. They wash us and cleanse us and correct us. Guys, when we gather here, we don't come for our entertainment. We don't gather for the world's benefit. We come to worship the Lord of hosts, to be cleansed, to be convicted, to be comforted by his word, and may the Lord convict you of this truth. For those of you, men, who are aspiring someday perhaps to take on the same responsibilities as Timothy, to shepherd and instruct God's people, for mature men heading in that direction, take Paul's words in this verse to heart. And listen, I'm not talking about a small elite group of like three of you. I'm talk I, I should be talking about virtually all of you men. All of you should be growing in maturity and righteousness, striving for maximal holiness and maturity. May many of you be qualified to be called as elders in the future should your church need it. Learn to be prepared now. Get ready for when you are in season. Learn the word and know it. Disciple people now. Meet with people Meet with other believers, bring scripture to bear in discipleship, admonish them, rebuke them, learn to use scripture as your guide for life. And listen, if you are ever thinking about eldership, inevitably you're going to be given these, these new 21st century books that have five new ways to grow a relevant church. Throw those in the fire. Get rid of them. Don't listen to any so-called wisdom that takes your eyes off of this book. The Lord has instructed us how to build his church, know the word of God, do what it says, preach it boldly. Verses three through four. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. For the time is coming, and is now here, spoiler, when people won't stand for and won't endure sound teaching. And the context of this larger passage defines sound teaching. He's just been talking about Scripture, the inspiration of it, its usefulness, the need for it to be preached. Right doctrine, sound teaching, is the teaching of God-breathed Scripture. That's what people won't endure. Paul warns, people aren't going to like Scripture. 
not just a lack of desire, but an act of distaste. People will hate the Bible. Now, I have heard, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard this whole, sound teaching is impossible to define, it's just your interpretation. Listen, everyone claims that their teaching is sound teaching, but no false faith, not the LDS church, not emergent spirituality, not the Catholic church, not the hyper-charismatic movement, none of them can claim sound, can, can claim sound teaching because none of them stand on God, the God-breathed inspired text of Holy Scripture. That's what Paul's talking about. The world doesn't endure it. It despises it. It sees it as barbaric and outdated. Why? Because it doesn't suit their own passions. The Bible's not what people want. What? I can't sleep with whoever I want to, even though we both consent. How prudish and unsophisticated. Sound doctrine is so often not what we want it to be. Heavenly realities crashing into human frailties. Well, our, our frailties protest. But listen, discomfort does not equal falsehood. The notion of hell is quite uncomfortable. It's distasteful to the educated, proper, evolved modern man, thinking themselves greater than God. They set themselves as judge, able to condemn God for his barbarism. And this is why we stand on Scripture alone, for who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Note the language of this verse. These evil men were, will accumulate for themselves more teachers to suit their desires. Evil men aren't content with a few voices. They want a choir of wickedness to rise against the sovereign Lord. Fools want only but to clap in agreement. They recoil from genuine rebuke and correction. The more eager men are to reject false, or I'm sorry, to reject too, true doctrine, the more diligent we must be in teaching such things and clinging to them. And you need to know about yourself, O oh Christian, your ears may still itch for teaching that satisfies your dying flesh, even as a regenerate believer. The godly man knows that his heart deceives him. Don't trust yourself. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Let your darkened mind be enlightened by the law of the Lord. The doctrinal corruption and superstition present in the era prior to the Reformation reared its head due to a lack of scriptural literacy. We often look down and say, oh, that age, look at how crazy they were. Yet who of us can genuinely look down on that era without considering the present slush of our own world, the itching ears of our age? People who call themselves disciples of Christ, two-thirds, two-thirds of the country call themselves disciple of, disciples of Christ. And they scream that gender doesn't exist. People should have the freedom to murder their children. These people delight in the idols of our day. Itching ears desire new and insightful teachers spouting either new philosophies or old heresies. The internet is a sewer of myths, speculations, and utter abhorrence. Amen. What we need is a new reformation, a pruning of falsehoods, and every single thing that would stand against the word of the Lord. And how does that start? Well, it starts with our hearts learning to be tuned not to all the world offers, but to the Lord. Cut off the world's influence over you, church. The world influences you as much as you let it. 
Throw your phone in the garbage. Destroy your computer. Get rid of the TV. Burn those things to the ground if they are how the world gets to you. Drink in the word of the Lord. Love it. Delight in it. And don't just love the parts that encourage you and make you happy. Delight in those that prick your flesh and throw water on your heart's pride. Delight and sing in the commandments. Weep at the revelation of coming judgment. Diligently read it, meditate it, find your heart's delight in it, hide in it, defend it, prefer it above all things most precious to you. Speak about it constantly. Conform your life and action to it that you may be complete and equipped for every good deed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so hardened in our hearts so frequently. Lord, our flesh is drawn to things that make our flesh happy. Lord, often you know our hearts aren't drawn just to straight-up sin, but to things that fill our mind with utter meaninglessness. But these things are but vanity, Lord. You have said these things are meaningless. Everything in this world under the sun is meaningless, vanity. But your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. O God, guide our steps. Teach us, O Father. Instruct us. Train us in righteousness. We acknowledge our frailty and we acknowledge our complete dependence, O Lord, on your word and your spirit. Cause your spirit to sanctify us, to fix our hardened hearts. Lord, may we learn to love you and love your word more than anything, anything, anything in this world. Lord, let us be honest with the fact that we're not there yet. Let us recognize that that's not true of us yet. Father, forgive us for our love of things other than you. Set our eyes on your word. Teach us to sing along with the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119. And all those dozens and dozens of verses, Lord, may our hearts be able to cry out the same things genuinely. Please help us in this. Thank you, O oh Father, for the gift of Scripture. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for speaking, though you had no need to, Lord. Because of this, you are worthy of praise. We worship you on account of you giving us your word. Thank you. Praise be to you. Glory be to you. We love you, Father. We love you, and we delight in you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and finish, close this morning by singing.